Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Kings in chapter 2. 1 Kings in chapter 2, that's on page 301 in the Church Bible. <coughs> 1 Kings chapter 2, we read the first 12 verses. I was in something of a dilemma as to whether to attempt to cover the entire chapter or to split it. And I decided to split it. Whether that's the right decision or not, you must judge after you've heard the two servants. But anyway, that's my plan. Let's read then verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn. That the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart, and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore do according to your wisdom, and do not let his grey hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, and bring his grey hair down to the grave with blood. So David rested with his fathers, and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was forty years, Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned thirty-three years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. How do the nations of this world go about securing their safety and their prosperity? Well, they normally seek a stable government, Strong leadership so that they are strong at home and rule their own people with a measure of authority. But many then will go on and add a further step and build up military power and strength in order to protect themselves and then sometimes either to aggressively seek to expand or if they are invaded in some way to fight any enemies. 
But then they will also enter into political alliances and into trade agreements in order to build up wealth and prosperity in that kind of way. In the ancient Near Eastern world, in the days of David and Solomon and their successors, things were no really, really no different. Many of the kings of the nations were dictators. When you think of men who came later, like Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, people like that, you think of them in terms of their boasting power and their authority. Because they saw themselves as almost as gods. And if they were not gods themselves, then they saw themselves as the direct representatives of gods. They were like priests. That's how they saw themselves. Priestly kings, representatives of the gods on earth. And often, in order to establish themselves, they would boast of their heroic behaviour, their conquests, that when they went into battle, they showed no mercy. They boasted of smashing all their enemies, and they boasted of their gods and the power and authority that they had acquired from these gods, or so they thought. Now on the surface, sometimes the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon does not look a great deal different. Didn't David build up his army? Didn't Solomon have an army? Didn't Solomon become one of the greatest and the wisest and wealthiest kings in the ancient world of his day? You remember how the Queen of Sheba reacted when she came to his kingdom. She said, the harp has not been told. Gold was as common as, almost as the stones and pebbles at the beach in Solomon's kingdom. But I say on the surface, because the kingdom over which David was king, and the kingdom over which Solomon became king, is the kingdom of God on earth. It is not perfect, but it is the kingdom of God. David and Solomon are the appointed kings over God's people. And God himself, the living and true God, who redeemed them out of Egypt many years before, had made specific promises to David and to those who came after him, beginning with Solomon. You may remember, and you need to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. These are some of the promises that God gave to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God said through Nathan, When your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that throne, that kingdom comes to final expression when Jesus Christ assumes the throne of David. It is his kingdom. But at this point, 
that is a thousand years away from its beginning. But it is promised. But here is God saying to David, David, I am going to establish your house, your family, your dynasty. You and your sons after you are going to be my kings. And I am going to establish your kingdom. Now, we find here in uh, verse 4 that David is very conscious. Two kings now. 1 Kings 2 and verse 4. I'll start that again. 1 Kings 2 and verse 4. David is very conscious of that promise that God has given to him. He speaks about the Lord fulfilling his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, God said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So however we are to interpret this, we must realise that what David is doing here is as a consequence of the promises that God has given to him. And then here in chapter 2, four times we find the same word establish that God has spoken to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In chapter 2 and verse 12, Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. And then just to underline this, take us into the passage we're not considering this evening, but in verse 24, Solomon says to Adonijah, Now therefore as the Lord lives who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And then in verse 45 and verse 46, Solomon's words to Shimei, the end of them, but King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And then the summary by the writer of the kings, so the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went down and struck him, went out and struck him down and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This chapter then is about how the kingdom of God was established under Solomon. And it is in consequence of the promises made to establish the kingdom and the throne and the house of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If the first chapter of 1 Kings was about who would succeed, who would sit upon the throne and rule, then 1 Kings chapter 2 is about how Solomon, who is now sitting upon that throne, how he will then establish his kingdom. How will he do that? It is summarised for us in 1 Kings 2 and verse 4. To walk before me in truth, with all their heart and with all their soul. This is David. He's saying, if your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, that is how the kingdom 
will be established. Not by political treaties, not by trade treaties, not by him assuming to himself other kinds of power and authority, but by walking before God in truth with all his heart and with all his soul. In other words, it will be by the practice of righteousness. The kingdom of God is established by righteousness. On the one hand, by Solomon's personal righteousness as a man and as a king, and then by the promotion of righteousness in the kingdom with the rewards for the righteous and punishments for the wicked. Adonijah, Joab, and then Shimei are put to death. And we will come to that, God willing, next week. But that is primarily, this is a kingdom that is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. It can only be established by righteousness. And that righteousness is walking before God in truth, with all your heart and with all your soul. Now this evening we're just going to consider Solomon's personal righteousness. The righteousness of him as a man and as a king. And look at David's charge to Solomon in verses 1 to 4. I want to bring before you four observations from this passage. First observation is this. David's priority. David's priority that if this nation is to prosper, then he must seek to maintain this walking before God in truth. David made that a priority. These are the last, the very last recorded words of David. In verse 1, he is near to death. By verse 10, he is dead. These are his last words. But he made this a priority. He is about to go the way of all the earth. He is about to die. What is pressing upon his heart? What is pressing upon his mind? What does he want to press upon the heart and mind and conscience of his son Solomon, who is about now to become king on his own without David? He reminds him, not how to be a great soldier in battle. Not how to build up an army. Not how to make political gains. Not how to make wealth for himself. His great and primary concern is Solomon. You need to learn how to walk before God in truth. With all your heart and with all your soul. That is the way to prosper in this world. And to prosper before God. That is what matters, Solomon, above all else. Your own personal walk and righteousness before God. How will the kingdom then be established in the hand of Solomon if Solomon resorts to wickedness? What happened to some of the kings who came after him, who departed from the way of righteousness? We know that the kingdom began to fall apart. And some of the nations then began to invade. And then at the end of the day, there was exile. First for the southern, first the northern kingdom, and then for the southern kingdom. But David has this priority. 
He comes to him and he says, I go the way of all the earth, Solomon, verse 2. Be strong therefore and prove yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways. And David takes these words of the promise that God had given him and puts them here in verse 4. Walking before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul. David himself had said, 2 Samuel 22, 22, that's easy to remember, all the twos. I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. I have set his judgments before me. As for his statutes, I did not depart from them. There is the pattern then for righteousness. And it is a biblical pattern. David is not an exception. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19 we read of Abraham. Abraham, God says of him, he is to command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that God may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And in order that may God may bring to David and to Solomon what he has spoken to them, they are then to walk in the ways of the Lord. David says, that was how I walked. That is how I conducted myself. Solomon, you are to do precisely the same thing. I made that a priority in my life. You are to make that a priority in your life. I am charging you, Solomon, and this is the concern of a father for the spiritual and moral welfare of his son. But more than that, this is the concern of a king, a dying king, a servant of the Lord, for the spiritual and moral prosperity of the kingdom of God. This is a man who is zealous for the kingdom of God. This is a man who is zealous for righteousness. And he is charging his son Solomon for the last time and laying upon his conscience the absolute priority and the necessity of him being a man of righteousness. And notice that David does not consider himself too old to deliver such a charge. It was the burden of his heart and neither and you must have this question in your mind Neither does he consider himself disqualified because of his failings with Bathsheba and Uriah. Walking before God in truth is still the norm even though he had sinned. He had confessed his sins. We read of that in Psalm 32. You read of it again in Psalm 51. He had confessed his sins. He had found forgiveness with God. He had returned to the way of truth from the way of sin. And David was a man who was quite overwhelmed with the sense of God's grace. Who was this man Solomon? Who was his mother? The very woman that he had committed adultery with. God in his grace had forgiven David his sin and established Solomon as the king. And therefore David 
Because he was a forgiven man and because he knew the word of God and because he knew the promises of God, he could deliver this charge as a godly man with the knowledge that his sin had been put away from him. And he could do it therefore with a good conscience as something which was laid on his conscience by God himself and by the very promises that God had given to him. That encouraged him. But there was, first of all then, David's priority. Secondly, observe that moral courage is needed to walk before God in truth. Moral courage is needed. In verse 2, he says to Solomon, Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Here is the beginning of his fatherly, kingly exhortation. Solomon, to walk before God in truth with all your heart and with all your soul will take moral courage. To do what is right, to do what is true, to further the righteousness of the kingdom of God and to do it before God to please Him will take moral strength and resolve the kind of strength and resolve that Moses urged upon Joshua. It's very similar words if you turn to Joshua and chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7 we read Moses is now dead and God using Moses as an example then says, as I was with Moses, verse 5, I will be with you. Be strong and of good courage, verse 6. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. And then in verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and verse 13, Paul urges the Corinthians to stand firm in the faith, to watch to be strong, to conduct themselves in a manly way. That is a way of moral courage. Joshua had to stand and do things sometimes which required great courage and great strength and great resolve. We know he was a man, such a character. Joshua chapter 24 speaks of him in that kind of way. He stands there as he challenges the people. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That took some guts. That took some courage to stand up and to be counted for God. It's that kind of determination and resolve and strength. It means that you overcome fears and obstacles. You don't follow the inclinations of your own heart and give way to fears. 
You don't copy the world's patterns of establishing yourself and your kingdom. Satan will portray such kind of conduct as weakness. But God says, no, this is the way of strength. This is the way of manliness. What God says to Joshua, David says to Solomon. Now what is true for Solomon and what is true for a man is no less true for a woman who desires to walk before God in truth. It takes the same resolve. It takes the same courage. It takes the same boldness for you ladies as it does for the men. But here David is talking to his son. David is talking to the king. And he's urging him to true manliness. True manliness is to walk before God in truth, Solomon. And it's going to take you moral courage and strength and resolve. David was under no illusions. My son, he says, it will take a man, a real man, to walk before God in truth as a king. Then thirdly, the third observation Observe that the path of obedience to God is the path mapped out for righteousness. The path of obedience to God is the path marked out for righteousness. This is the burden of what David says to his son Solomon in verses 3 and 4. Let me read them to you again. Solomon, he says, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commands, his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me saying if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul. He said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Solomon, it is the way of obedience. That is the way of righteousness. You are to walk before God in truth. Solomon, you are to keep the charge of the Lord your God. It is not only I who am charging you as your father. And as the one who is now pressing these things upon you as the next king. But it is you are to keep the charge of the Lord your God. I am the mouthpiece of God, he is saying to you. I come to you in God's name. God spoke directly to Joshua. Now he mediates that word through David to Solomon. But Solomon, if you are to prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, then it will be by following the path of obedience that has already been mapped out for you in the law of Moses. You don't have to go and seek very far for it. You don't have to go and invent it. You don't even have to go to a prophet to find it. You don't have to come to me and ask me. It is there, existing in the Word of God, the law of Moses. It's there in God's statutes, in His commands, His judgments, His testimonies. This is the rich, many-sided aspects of the Word of God, the wisdom, the law by which you are to conduct yourself as a man and as a king. This is the righteousness that you require. 
This is how you are to live your life. It is the way of obedience. Let me turn you back for a moment to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17. We won't read it all, but in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, there are the principles laid out that God gives to Moses concerning kings. We will have occasion to return to these verses when we assess Solomon's rule in the light of these things. But notice what it says in verse 18 in particular. It shall be when he, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now it says something about David, that he should give this charge. David knew these things. David had lived by these things himself. And now he is turning to his son and saying, Solomon, you must do likewise. But notice, it is the word of God. It is the law of Moses. And you'll notice the practical effects, the learning to fear the Lord your God. Learning to reverence his name, to worship him and to worship him alone and not to give way to idolatry. Then there is to be carefully, he says, be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes so that, verse 20, your heart may not be lifted up above your brethren. You're going to be the king, you're going to be over them. But you need to learn to be humble. And not to assume power and authority and misuse that power and that authority. And he says then that your heart may not be lifted up above your brethren. And that you may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. And that you will prosper. That you will prolong your days in your kingdom. You and your children. In the midst of Israel. That's the path of prosperity. The fear of God. A humbleness. A walking along the narrow path and turning neither to the left or to the right. And then that prosperity that comes. David is saying to Solomon, Solomon, this is the way. Walk in it. This is the way that you must go. Here is the fundamental obligation I am laying upon your heart and mind and conscience. Here is your duty. Here is your responsibility. These are to be things of first importance. Now why I speak to you and for the remainder of your days upon this earth. Both as an individual, as a man, as my son and as a king. It is all there. It is all laid out for you, Solomon. This is the way you must go. Walk in all these ways. Keep these statutes. Walk before God in truth with all your heart and with all your soul. Take heed then to your way. Examine yourself in the light of the word of God. 
in order that you may walk with integrity and with righteousness. Solomon, it will take you moral courage to do that. It will take you resolve and determination to do that. But this is the kingdom of God. This is the charge, Solomon, that God has given to me and I'm giving it to you. And he's laying it upon you. This is God's way. He is the sovereign Lord. We're not here to negotiate with him. He has redeemed us out of Egypt. He has given us his laws and his commandments. He has raised us up. He is making our house great. He has given him this kingdom. He has given us this throne. We're not there to negotiate with him. We are to walk in his ways. He has put you over his people. And you are to rule them in righteousness. You are to walk in truth before God. You are to keep the charge of the Lord your God. Solomon. And then the fourth observation is this. It's not so obvious until you think about it. But David's exhortation to Solomon and the charge that he gives him is based on God's promise. David's eye is very clearly upon God's promise to him as king. Notice again what it says in verse 4. We may have glossed over those words earlier. His exhortation is to keep, verse 3, the charge of the Lord your God. The end of verse 3, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Then notice verse 4. So that, or that, the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The Lord said to me, if your sons obey me, then you will never lack a man to sit upon the throne of Israel. It's not simply that David knows that blessing and prosperity are linked to obedience. It's not simply that David knows Deuteronomy chapter 17 and will press that and has pressed that upon his conscience. David has, in addition to that, a burning desire that the promise that God has given to him concerning his house, concerning his throne, concerning his kingdom, he has a burning desire that that promise be fulfilled. And that encourages him. And that stirs him up then to see this promise fulfilled. He delivers this charge to Solomon. That was also David's prayer when God first gave these promises to him. Again, if you will turn back to Second Samuel and chapter 7. I will not read again the promise. There in verses 14 and 15, we've already read that, but if you turn down later on in that chapter to verse 27. Sorry, verse 25, first of all. Now, he says, he's responding to these promises. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house Establish it forever and do as you have said. 
So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord, you are God and your words are true and you've promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. And it is out of that promise and out of that initial prayer that David delivers this charge to Solomon. This is something that has been controlling David's whole outlook it true, it got pushed to one side when he fell into sin with Bathsheba and then killed Uriah. But this man has been restored and this man now is about to go the way of all the earth and he is deeply aware and conscious of these promises and of his prayers that he has repeatedly prayed and now is his last opportunity, as it were, and he presses these things home upon Solomon. Why? Not only out of his concern for Solomon, but his concern for the honour and the glory of God in the kingdom. After his death, he is concerned that God's kingdom will advance. And therefore he draws encouragement to deliver this exhortation and charge. It's not simply he's pressing Solomon to obedience. He's also pressing upon him, Solomon, this is what God has promised. This is the burden of my heart. I want to see that promise fulfilled. That's why I'm speaking to you. And you have that promise too, for the promises to me and to my house. In fact, God said to David, that David's house would not be like the house of Saul, whom God had rejected. Because of his disobedience. Now as his last act upon this earth, he is seeking to assure, to do everything within his power, to see that that promise is fulfilled. And notice that David did not leave things just to take their course, because he said, well I believe in the sovereignty of God, God has promised, or he will bring it to effect, won't he? Yes, he will, but he uses means, and David is the appointed means for the fulfilling of that promise. That's why he delivers that exhortation, that charge to Solomon. But now you will say, but Solomon did not obey in the way that David prayed that he would. Does that undo the whole thing? Well, of course, we will wrestle with that as we work our way through the first 12 chapters of Kings. All I will say at this point is this. The unfaithfulness of Solomon does not undo the promise of God to David. Because that promise stands and comes to fulfilment ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. That is quite clear as you read through Kings, Two kings, read through Isaiah, the promises to David still stand. And they still stand after the exile, 
Well then what are we to make of this? Well, when Solomon disobeyed the Lord, he forfeited, not the promises, but he forfeited the prosperity and the blessing of God. But the promise stood. The kingdom was split after Solomon, after Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam. Ten tribes, Israel, the northern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Israel, the northern kingdom, went into exile under Assyria in 722 BC. Judah went into exile in 586 under the Babylonians. But that was not the end of God's promise. The blessing had gone, the prosperity had gone, but the promise remained. And God has put his son upon the throne of David. One who is perfect in his obedience. Perfect in his righteousness. Solomon did not fulfill David's ambitions. But God raised up one far greater than David and far greater than Solomon. His own son, Jesus Christ. We would have far more to say about that in due course. But what I've done this evening is to lay out these four observations from this passage about walking before God in truth with all their heart, he says, and with all their soul. That is righteousness. It is based on obedience to the law of God and it draws its encouragement from the very promises of God. And what are some of the implications for us? Perhaps you've anticipated some of them as we've gone through and made these observations. If we are to walk before God in truth, with all our heart and with all our soul, and if we would possess that prosperity, that God, that blessing which alone God can bring upon us, then what are we to do and how are we to conduct ourselves? Well, first of all, we are to renounce. Renounce false man-made wisdom and plans and schemes in order to follow after that which is heavenly from God himself. We are to renounce those man-made schemes of wisdom which come in every generation but they are basically the same. Things that men have invented. Sometimes those things become then perverse and are contrary to the things that God has given in his word. We are under the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. This is his law. These are his promises. This is the way in which he exercises his lordship, his authority, his control, his presence. The kingdoms of this world and the kings and rulers of this world, they stand exposed and judged by the word of God. Men and women invent false macho images and feminine images. And they are shown up for what they are. Moral wickedness and rebellion against God. Disobedience and folly. Why? Because they centre upon man. 
They centre upon woman. They centre upon lust for self-expression, self-promotion, self-satisfaction, self-assertiveness. God is pushed out of the picture. His word is regarded as binding us. Isn't it any wonder that the Apostle Peter could say to those in his generation in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 2, we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but the will of God. For we spend enough of our time past in doing the will of the Gentiles. We walk in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, that's man-made wisdom. That's prosperity as the world sees. That's having fun. That's entertaining yourself. That's pleasing yourself, serving yourself. But God is pushed out of the picture. And we are to renounce all kinds of false man-made wisdom that centers upon self-assertiveness and to embrace the righteousness of the kingdom that is seen in a God-centered obedience and love for God. Prosperity is not in mere externals. Manliness and true womanliness but manliness is a matter of the inward man, the heart and the soul, and a wholehearted obedience and following of the Lord. It is a consciousness of God. It is walking before God. It is conscious of His truth and His claims upon us as redeemed men and women of God. He has His claims upon us. Claims upon our minds and upon our hearts and upon our consciences, upon our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears in order that we might walk before him in truth. And that's the way which we must go and measure our lives accordingly and not measure ourselves and be drawn into the worldliness, the moral wickedness and mire that is all around us. Solomon at his best spoke in these kinds of ways. In Ecclesiastes in chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing whether good or evil. Or, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1 and verse 7, again Solomon at his best. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And that wisdom and instruction is not the wisdom and instruction of men, it's the wisdom and instruction of God. And fools despise that. So we are to renounce that way and to embrace the way of righteousness. And secondly, it is pertinent. 
There are implications. Are you concerned for the prosperity of your own life? The prosperity of your family and your children? And concerned for the prosperity of the Church of Christ in this age? Then you must seek to be marked by the same priorities that characterise David the same cares and concerns and prayers that characterised David, the same obedience that characterised David, the same obedience that he pressed upon Solomon's heart and conscience. And he must be driven by the same promises and draw encouragement and motivation from those promises. God has promised that his kingdom will be established in Jesus Christ in this world. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who are the people who are to pray that? People who are like David, who are driven by those concerns, driven by those laws, driven by those promises. Men and women who have the same priorities and cares and concerns and zeal. Ask yourself, what are my priorities as I live my life on this earth? Before God. Before God. When I stand before God and give an account of my life, will these be rehearsed before me? Will these be the things that I will be able to say? David is able to say, Second Samuel 22, 22, I walked in the ways of God. I've not departed from them. Parents, fathers in particular, do your children, will your children know you and respect you and love you and remember you and honour you as a man who walked before God in truth with all your heart and soul. Will that be your reputation in your family? Will you urge them on? Will you pray for them as David did for his son Solomon? The Church of Christ, elders, deacons, members of the Church, are these your priorities? Are these your prayers? Are these your concerns? When you are gone, will this be the reputation that you have? It all depends on whether you imbibe those things. And whether you follow those things. It's no use putting it off and say, well, I hope it'll work out all right in the end. No. That isn't what David said to Solomon. Carry on and just hope it'll work out in the end. He gave him a deliberate charge and he expected Solomon to take it to heart. But if you are concerned for those things, then you know what you must do. You know how those things are to be done. What does David say to Solomon? There's a third thing here, by implication. 
He directs him back to the law of Moses. He directs him back to the promises that God has already given to him. You need to continue, and I need to continue to read, to meditate, and to imbibe the entirety of God's word. The law of God to guide our path, his commandments and his statutes. The promises to encourage us and to motivate us. David charges Solomon to walk before God in truth. Where is the truth? It is not out there. In the words of human wisdom, it is here in the word of God. And we must therefore read it, meditate and imbibe it. You ought to have some kind of system whether it takes you one year, three years, five years, but a way that takes you through the entirety of the Word of God in order that you might familiarise yourself thoroughly with the mind and will of God. Listen again to Solomon at his best in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 3. These are the words, remember, of a father to a son. Solomon is copying his father David. Proverbs 3 and verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favour and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And we could give many other examples. Those first eight or nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. But there is one last implication. We're trying to now determine how well, we must continue to read and meditate and imbibe God's word. But we also need, fourthly, to pray for that moral courage that we will be strong. It is by consistent obedience. It is by laying hold of the promises of God that we will acquire that resolve and that determination and that moral courage to do what is right in a climate and an opinion where right is regarded as evil and false. You look at the world and sometimes it is very attractive. There is a live and let live attitude. There is the attitude of mind that says, well, it's alright if they want to do that. That's up to them. They can lead their life as they please. And I can do as I please. All this is a matter that is a private opinion. No, it is not. It is a matter of obedience to the word of God. What has God said in his word? That is the primary concern if you are a child of God. If you are a Christian and you want to serve God faithfully in this generation, then you are to be concerned and you will want to be concerned. Lord, how do I walk before you in truth? with all my heart and with all my soul. Lord, I am weak. Give me the courage. Give me the guts 
to obey your word in every single situation that I face in my life. You belong to Christ. David and Solomon have been redeemed as a people. As kings, they led the people of God. They have been redeemed out of Egypt. They were different from the nations of this world. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you have been redeemed by that blood in order to bring honour and glory to your God in this world. To do the will of God. To declare his praises in this world. And you are to love God. You are called to love him. And you're called to love him before men. Before men and women who do not love God. And who think you are foolish and stupid. And who maybe who will pour scorn and contempt upon you. Because of your seeking to walk in righteousness. And that contempt and that scorn may come from members of your own family. It may come from a husband against a godly wife. It may come from a brother or a sister. It may come from parents. It may come from aunts. It may come from uncles. It may come from work colleagues. It may come from any direction. But it will come. And that is why I say you need moral courage. And I need moral courage. If we are not to court the favour of men. But rather court the favour of our God. The opinion of others. And wanting to be accepted by others is a very powerful thing that undermines holiness and righteousness. What we need much more of is that desire to please God. That He will look upon us with favour. He will look upon us and bless us and prosper us. But he will bless us and prosper us insofar as we seek to obey him. Insofar as we come on our knees and call out and cry out unto him for that moral strength and resolve to serve him faithfully. How many times have you been afraid to stand up for Jesus Christ because you know what it's going to cost you? That's what David is talking about to Solomon. Solomon, it's going to cost you. There's a price to be paid to be faithful to God. It takes courage. It takes resolve. It takes strength. But is God not equal to that demand? Is God not promised to be the God of his people? God does not give us his laws. God does not give us his promises. In order that we be weak. In order that we be so feeble. That we do not stand up for him. We are weak. But in our weakness we cast ourselves upon God and plead for that courage and that strength to walk before him in truth with all our heart and with all our soul. Amen.
We thank you, our God and Father, for the moral resolve and courage that you gave to your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his obedience that took him to the cross, even the death that he suffered there, the price that he paid. We thank you, our God, that he is the great pattern for us. And we ask, our God, that you would equip us to live in this world to your praise and to your glory that you would encourage us with your promises and lead us in the way of truth according to your laws and commandments and statutes and testimonies. And Lord, you would give to us that moral determination and resolve to serve you faithfully in this generation. Lord, we pray that when we are gone from this world, the reputation that we have will be that we walked before God in truth with all our heart and with all our soul Lord be pleased to grant us the grace that we need to fulfil that word we ask it in Christ's name Amen, Amen.